Hi, and welcome to Get Your Damn Flu Shot, a podcast exploring the most pertinent topics in public health today. We're your hosts, Gianna Musalimus, and I'm Diana Rubin. Our mission is to close the gap between public health and the public, one listener at a time. Dr. Glenn Gare is a professor of psychology and founding director of evolutionary studies at the State University of New York. His research focuses on how Darwin's theory of evolution can shed light on issues of human behavior, specifically on the human experience. In addition to his well-known blog on Psychology Today, he's published over 100 scholarly articles, book chapters, and books. Some of these titles include Darwin's Guide to Living a Richer Life, Measuring Emotional Intelligence, and my personal favorite, How to Own Your Psychology Major. He received a large grant from the National Science Foundation to make important advances in the expansion of evolutionary studies. And his work has appeared in media outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, Cosmopolitan, London Times, and he's also been featured on venues such as CBS, Sunday Morning, NPR, and BBC World Radio. So we're so excited to have him here. So we just wanted to start, Dr. Gare, I was reading one of your articles, and I understand that you are a COVID survivor. Yes. So we want to start with how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? <laughs> so happy that you're healthy. Yeah, thank you for that. I'll tell you, this thing is a real beast, and I'm kind of a health nut. So I generally run pretty healthy. I run mm-hmm. 11 marathons, and I haven't literally haven't had a temperature since I'm going to say maybe 1986, 1987. So I was teaching and I came home and I was shivering and I was exhausted, like more tired than I'd ever been. I'm like, huh, one hour of stats shouldn't have done me in like that. Yeah. uh, After 11 marathons. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how you don't like put things together. Since it was early March, were you able to get access to testing or? Not really. It was a crazy time. Tests were so hard to come by at that Mm -hmm. particular juncture. So I stayed in bed essentially for two weeks. I did not have respiratory symptoms really. Like I couldn't breathe super deeply, but. Did you have the no taste, no smell? Um, I did not get that. No. But for the first time, and I'm going to say about five years, all I wanted was cheeseburgers and ice cream. And it was like, somehow my body, this thing was affecting my body's metabolism in this way that it was crazy. Whatever stuff I'm usually eating to try to be healthy, I'm like, no way. I got tested a couple of days later. I did come out positive. And now I'm up to running seven, eight miles again and kind of feeling wow. 100%. But it, it did take a while, I will yeah. say. So thank you. Thank you for asking. Well, you can answer these questions, you know, not only from your personal background, but also as a COVID survivor. These will sure. be very near and dear to you. Before we kind of jump in, because I wanted to ask you a question relevant to what you were just saying. For many of us, what was important to us six weeks ago has been put on the back burner. You were saying your projects, and that could be something like a vacation, a birthday dinner, or even your wedding. And I think we've all had to go through this process of not even being able to really mourn that or something. Like it was just, it was what it was. And so one of the questions that I was wanting to ask you was this concept of radical acceptance. Do you think that we all will get there? And is there any kind of steps you would suggest 
to start moving in that direction? Yeah, it's a huge issue. And it's interesting that people at every age level and every developmental stage and every cohort, everyone's affected by this. Everyone's kind of affected differently. So my daughter just was in her second year in college and loves college and was so excited to go back to college after spring break. Everything for her, everything's canceled. It's affecting old people in, in very obvious and substantial ways. Little kids. Mm-hmm. I saw on CNN, Elmo had a nice conversation with Dr. Gupta the other day. I, don't know if I you saw, saw that. that. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It was like the greatest TV I've, I've seen. People but... are, one of the things I've loved is just to see how inventive people have gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's a situation that's been immediately foisted on all of us. In my 50 years, I've never seen anything like it. I'm talking to people from older generations too. And even like World War II was obviously nasty, but this, in a lot of ways, this is kind of about as bad a thing as we can run into as a shared community. So going off of that, in a recent article of yours on Psychology Today, you were talking about how in a time of a public crisis that supersedes everything else. You presented psychologist Abraham Maslow's iconic Mm -hmm. theory on human motivation, known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Can you explain this theory to our audience and how this theory relates to our human response to the global pandemic? Sure. Yeah, I wrote that at a junction, but at that time there was a very big tension regarding the cost-benefit of closing down businesses and schools and going on lockdown and large-scale quarantine versus the benefits of that are health-related. We'll have more time to figure out a vaccine. More people will live. So it really is this extraordinary cost-benefit. I'll tell you, as a New York State resident, I'm particularly pleased with Governor Andrew Cuomo's response. He's taken this approach that's really consistent with this Maslowian perspective that I kind of paint there. So Abraham Maslow, I think it might have been the 1950s, pioneering psychologist who essentially said, if you look at human needs, they're kind of hierarchically arranged and Mm -hmm. you have to satisfy the basic needs first. So you have to get enough sleep. You have to get enough to eat. You have to have air. You have to have water. So this is kind of at the base. We picture it as a pyramid. I think it's just visually useful to think that way. And if you don't have air or you don't have water, you're going to die. So you really need those basic, basic needs met. But then above that, the next level is what we call safety needs. And safety needs are, you need to feel safe. If you have all your physiological needs met, but you really feel like the people around you are are dangerous, or if your life is dangerous, or if your neighborhood is dangerous, you're not going to live, you're not going to survive. That's pretty bad. So you're not going to worry so much about other needs other than, gosh, I got to be I got to be safe. I got to get home after school in this neighborhood. Above that, we, we call it esteem needs and belongingness needs. People are very social in nature, which I think is really relevant. Belonging needs and connecting socially with others is so foundational to the human experience. You know, we're an incredibly mm-hmm. social species. We evolved mm-hmm. that way for a long time. But it's like you can't even think about those needs if these lower yeah. needs are not met. And then above that, we have these sort of more advanced like self-actualization, which is this almost idealistic, like, all my needs are satisfied and now I'm moving toward my optimal self kind of thing. And the way that I put it in that article is the entire human population across the globe right now, it's like we're all forced to be dealing with those most basic health-related 
needs, including the prime minister of the United Kingdom. And when the prime minister of the United Kingdom is getting this and is on a ventilator, what does that say? That says that no one's, it's not money, it's not status, no one's immune to this. And it's kind of humbling. Like if you step back, it kind of, I'm a big, like just my philosophy of the human experience is very egalitarianist. So there's something very humbling about this. But when people are starting to talk about, well, we need to open the businesses and we need to do that. I'm like, no way, we got to solve the base, base needs of the human experience first. We got to put safety first in this particular situation. I know that in that article, you were talking about this model, what our basic needs are, what those physiological needs are, contrasting those with this idea of reopening the economy. For me in Texas, like reopened last Friday and we are already seeing spikes in our numbers and is this the right thing to do? It goes back to Maslow's model, which is addressing this bottom level first, which is the health crisis. We've heard the standpoint from economists, politicians, scientists. It's a debate. And what the best strategy is, we don't really know. But from a social psychologist standpoint, if you were on a panel with these people, and some argue for and some argue against, but no one's really bringing up this idea of basic human needs when they're discussing the COVID-19 response, at least in America. What would your strategy be? To try to essentially convince people who don't exactly see it. There's a lot of what we call empirical questions. So an empirical Mm -hmm. question is one where it's kind of like, we can speculate, but we really need good scientific research to know the answer. So I'll give you a speculation of mine, which I think should be the target of some empirical research, which has to do with education level. It seems to me that education level, that relatively educated people kind of get it and kind of get it more. And they might not be biology majors, but they have some base level understanding of of this kind of pandemic and the whole idea of a large scale biological crisis like this. But you can't see it. I had corona and I never saw the virus other than symptoms that I had. So I I do feel like there's a big education kind of thing going on. So to some extent, education is going to be part of the the solution. I feel like America has such a strong libertarianness Mm -hmm. that kind of underlies libertarians kind of across the entire political spectrum. This is America, you do what you want. And this is such a strange situation where policies that are really controlling and are for the greater good are, I think, in everyone's long-term interest. And I think that more educated people tend to be more likely to, to see and understand that. The case in point, going back again to the United Kingdom, with no disrespect meant to Boris, the prime minister, he was talking about the this idea of, well, let whoever's going to get it, get it, and then we'll be an even stronger population of English people at the end of this. And then right. the dude ends up in the hospital. So they changed their policies real quick once that happened. That idea he was suggesting, that's kind of an evolutionary kind of... It's in a very interesting way. It's kind of like saying, let natural selection take place, you know. Survival but of from the fittest, an, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because evolution, at least this is my take on the human evolved psychology, you're right that that is natural selection, but human beings evolved the ability to think think about the welfare of others and to think about the welfare of the broader group. And this is why if there's someone in your local community who is very selfish and isn't giving 
isn't contributing or has cheated in some way or has betrayed others. This is why we have really strong negative moral emotions. And so I think that like a more advanced part of the human evolutionary experience is this extraordinary set of psychological adaptations that are all about looking out for the greater good, looking out for what's best for my group, which can be variously defined. So I think on like a lower level, what that perspective is almost like saying, well, let natural selection play out. But I feel like that kind of forgets the fact that we're part of the evolutionary process as well. And there's a lot of advanced and highly moral and highly other oriented features of our evolved psychology, which I argue at a time like this should really kick into high gear. Wow, that's so interesting. This is like some of the coolest stuff, I think, to me. How do you apply that model to a society? Because we're going to have to open the economy before everyone's basic needs are supported. It's a great question. There are two really big parts to that that I'm hearing that I think I'm going to try to answer in turn. And the one of them has to do with the fact that before all this, the United States and other, quote, advanced societies have been running into major spikes in mental health problems. College campuses, Columbia is actually kind of a famous example. College campuses cannot keep enough staff in their mental health counseling. Prior to COVID, right? This is prior. This is prior. If you look at graphs of, and it's it's largely young people are often the ones that are shown. and, And people argue maybe it's because it's become more normalized. Maybe the culture has changed. But if you look at suicide rates, if you look at like real objective markers, it's not imaginary. There has been a huge increase. And I've got all kinds of reasons or or ideas on that, but especially in people who've been raised in relatively urbanized areas and urbanized Mm -hmm. areas, people don't know other people. They're surrounded by strangers. They're surrounded by evolutionarily novel kinds of experiences, which are classic triggers for mental health issues. So that's where we were. Now, add on to that, everyone has the cheese touch. Add on to that, you can't touch anyone. I go walking with my wife and our dogs. Everyone's got the cooties. Everyone's got the cooties. (laughs) And like you're walking down next to someone and you're like, that person was five feet instead of four feet. How dare Mm -hmm. they? And it's unbelievable. It's like life was hard enough as it was and this new reality has just been, it's crazy. I mean, since I'm the one in our house who had the COVID-19, I'm the one who goes to the grocery store and I wear a mask and I use as much Purell as I can find and all that. We wipe down our food with a bleach, like everything as diligently as, as we can. But when I'm at the grocery store in this small town where I've lived for 20 years and I know half the people, everyone's like freaked out. What do you think is going to happen from that? I mean, do you think that's going to? Do you think it's going to last? Is this mentality going to wear off, or is it going to change the way we interact with people? I think it is. It's it's interesting because one of the things I do a lot of things in my job. One thing I do in my job is I teach in China. But one thing I've noticed, and I look back now, and I feel like I can kind of see. Here in New York, and so you guys have spent a lot of time in New York, New York people are huggy. So like, you know, hey, how you doing? And people give each other hugs and shake hands and do the old, the bro hug thing and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. These have been normalized customs and socially positive kinds of customs for years. When I would go to China Mm -hmm. and I noticed people didn't respond like, you don't really like hug people in China and Mm -hmm. like all those things are different. 
And I never quite understood it. And then I look back now, I'm like, man, these people had SARS. This is where SARS was to like oh. 15, 20. Like, in other words, this is a place that's had something real similar. They wear masks in those big cities. I always thought it was because of the emissions. It's not. The city I go to is clean as a whistle. It's because of this. And I never wow. quite put that together. So one speculation I have moving forward is we might become less physically there might just be a general tendency toward people not touching each other as much and especially mm-hmm. with strangers especially in social situations so i do think there will be long term yeah. just going off of that so it's interesting because i just asked you you know what do you think is going to happen in the future one of the things that i read in your article and that i started thinking about is that with the arrival of covid-19 we've also been able to think about how infectious disease might have affected us in the past in ways yeah. we didn't realize. And we're now making these connections like in China. Oh, now we get why this is such a huge part of their social interaction and their culture. One of the things you wrote about, which I loved, and I think anyone on here who can kind of relate to being an extrovert or to being more social is that you kind of presented this theory or this idea that historically we thought between extroverts and introverts, maybe extroverts died younger. They were more risk-taking. Maybe there are less of them in our society. But what if actually, now that we're seeing COVID, what if it was really infectious diseases that wiped out extroverts more than introverts? And that makes total sense. I mean, I see a lot of my friends who I know are very social party animals. I mean, they're not quarantining. They're not Mm self-isolating. And I think education is a big part of it, but others, it's just a social need. So I I would love for you to talk about that a little bit. There's a kind of classic or now classic example, a young resident at Dartmouth Medical College. So 30 year old guy, and he was in Italy and he comes back from Italy, which of course was hit very hard before the United States was hit, maybe late February. And he came back and he had a bad cough and a temperature and his doc, he went to his doctor and his doctor said, I think you got this virus. And the resident that night went to a party with over 70 people in attendance, right? And it's it's like, there's anyone who ought to know better, the doctor whose doctor told him to self-quarantine. But stepping back, Diana, to your question, there are plenty of examples in the natural world of parasites hijacking nervous systems of their hosts to get them to do what they want. It sounds a little bit science fiction-y, except for the fact that it's true. And probably the best documented one of these is called Toxoplasma Gandhi, which does have effects. I just read, there's an article in a peer-reviewed public health journal recently about humans affected with Toxoplasma Gandhi. If you give them just a test of extroversion, they score higher than people that are not affected with it. So if you have a mouse that is infected with Toxoplasma gondii and you spray cat urine into its environment, not the most pleasant idea, but that's its research, the mouse will not go to the edge of the box, but the mouse will go straight in the middle as if it's like saying, here, kitty, kitty kind of thing. And that's not good for the mouse, but it is good for Toxoplasma. And the flu does something very similar. So there's research by a friend of mine, Chris Ryber, a biological anthropologist at Binghamton, who documented that people who have the flu compared to a matched sample 
will actually seek out social opportunities and go to more parties and be exposed to a higher number of people during the asymptomatic stage, the couple of days mm-hmm. before they start showing symptoms. So what I put out, I put a couple articles out there, but what I put out there was maybe Corona has a very similar kind of thing. Why wouldn't it? To replicate right. itself and any evolved organism, the primary reason it evolved, the primary reason it exists is because it was good at making replicas of itself. It has adaptations that facilitate that replication. So any virus that's good at replicating itself is going to replicate. Viruses that don't have adaptations that are good at that are going to die out. So some with corona, there's two of you. There's you, the human, with your interests and what's going to help you survive and reproduce. And there's what's going to help corona survive and reproduce. And those are evolutionarily at odds. And then just to add this additional bit, and this, Diana, is the part that you were talking about, there's a very basic set of individual differences in human sociality. We call it the introversion-extroversion dimension. There are some people who just thrive on being with other people, who seek out other social opportunities. And there's some people that are, let me read my library book. I want one or two friends. I don't want like a zillion friends kind of thing. And people vary in a natural distribution Mm -hmm. on that. And I think you described the idea really well, Diana, which was that When you look at human populations, this comes out as a normal distribution, which has always been a little bit of a mystery because extroversion seems like it's going to be beneficial. Like you tell your kids, go out there, meet people, be connected with others. So if we're always facilitating extroversion, why does not extroversion become the primary dominant form? And there has been talk about maybe extroversion has some costs, such as there is more risk taking, they're more likely to die of accidents and things like that. But if you step back, evolution works on a much bigger time scale, and there have been pandemics. We're just unfortunate enough to be in the middle of one now, but there was one 100 years ago. There was probably one 100 years before that. If you read the Bible, which I don't typically, but if you know the story of Moses and Exodus, there seemed to be some kind of pandemics going on back then as well. So this is a regular part of the human experience. And who's it going to wipe out more? probably extroverts because they're more likely to, like you're saying, be the, you know, I know a lot of young college kids Mm -hmm. and I just shake my head. They're partying, they're bringing their friends over, they're seeing their friends, they can't, and it's the life stage. It's hard to disapprove of it on the one hand, but from a health perspective, it could be disastrous. You closed that article kind of saying, I'm not saying we're all getting COVID because extroverts can't just stay inside, right? You know, you're an extrovert yourself. So hearing this and understanding this, then how can we actually apply it and use that to address how we respond in social settings now? Sure. That's a great question. Yeah. So what's the applicability of it? So I'm actually, that of all the different ideas I've had on this, and you can see I'm really interested in doing research. I'm really interested in doing research that might make a difference. And so I've been, Gianna, thinking very closely about that particular question. And I have a team of people right now, including some of my graduate students, including some scholars from other countries, where we might simply test the extroversion hypothesis, which seems like of all these different ideas, the most basic seems to be this idea that extroverts are more likely to get COVID, are more likely to spread COVID. And 
that might be really useful information. So we're hoping to get data from a good number of people, probably from the US, probably from the UK, for various reasons. That'll be sort of study one. And then depending on what we find, we might expand it, which I think would be very useful. But if you simply know a risk factor, right? Like we know risk factors. We know risk factors for responding poorly. Age is a risk factor. We know that gender, biological sex is a risk factor. We know blood type is a risk factor. This disease, this pandemic, this situation is totally rooted in the human social experience, right? And so like we're so stuck in the medical model of thinking about disease and pandemic and all that that we don't really step back and think this is a, a human behavioral science issue. So one of the things we're looking to do is address that question, is extroversion a significant predictor of the tendency to become infected? Because that would be really useful. I think if we knew that, then it'd be like, okay, you're an extrovert. So think about that before you go out to the party or before you do this or before you do that. You have extroverted friends, you know your extroverted friends, knowing that that's a risk factor might affect whether they come over to your house or not. It just might be one more useful piece of this enormous puzzle. That's so interesting. The first thing I was going to ask you from that is, what if we could conclude right now it was a risk factor? And I would want to know, you know, what would you tell people? That's part of one of the questions that we ask every guest on here is, what's kind of like the one piece of advice that you're you're telling people that are reaching out to you? Hey, what should I do? What does this mean? Could you speak to that? Yeah, I really think this is one where we have to defer to the experts. That's, I, I think, kind of the main thing that I've been telling people Thank goodness that Fauci is on that committee. And if he goes off that task force, I personally am going to freak out. Whatever you think about the politics, thank goodness that there's experts that are at the top that are helping shape policy and decision. That certainly is happening at the county level in New York, where I am in Ulster County. We have some really good people that are helping keep an eye on this and and running this and certainly at the state level as well. So I think deferring to experts. Now, Andrew Cuomo is smart because he knows he's not an expert, but he knows that there are people with degrees, with backgrounds that he can lean on. We need to lean on people with the kind of degrees that you're getting. We need to lean on people that are public health experts. We need to lean on people who are epidemiologists. I want to see their numbers. Is there going to be a second spike? What predicts a second spike? The Spanish flu had a second spike. The second spike was worse than the first spike. So what's statistically predicted that? What can we do to change the course of this relative to what happened? Biostatisticians have been around for a long time. Their work is actually not identical to what the epidemiologists are doing. Their work also has the capacity to help shed light on this particular situation. Mm -hmm. I think we have to follow science, that science has to lead how we address this. For sure. I know you're not a cognitive behavioral psychologist and your study is more in evolution and and social psychology. Just thinking about what you were talking about in mental health and on college campuses, from a mental health standpoint, is there any way we can better understand like how we're processing this information or what if I have a panic attack today, Gianna has one Monday and we're all kind of off sync and we're all having anxieties. And this one comedian, she calls them the panics. She's Mm -hmm. like, the panics are coming. The panics are coming. What would you advise for those panics? Well, you're right that I'm not a clinical or a counseling psychologist, but I will say a couple of things. First off, the psychology department at 
SUNY New Paltz, where I teach, is mm-hmm. affiliated with the Institute for Disaster Mental Health. And they have been very busy, for better or worse, with this whole situation. They've put out lots of messaging. They've collaborated with Antonio Delgado, who's our U.S. congressperson, mm-hmm. and the information's really been used to get out there on a national scale. And what they're essentially saying, the basic message is this has absolutely clearly potential for mental health crises that are just as bad as the physical component. And so we need to address exactly the kind of questions that you're asking. So just to step back a little bit, I will say Mm -hmm. that as a professor, I teach about, I have about a hundred students in my class. One day I was looking at them in class, talking to them. And then a couple of days later, they're in little boxes on screens and, you know, everyone's doing the, the Zoom thing. And I've met with the way I've been doing my exams is I'm meeting with each student individually and doing like oral exams. But I'm also using that as an opportunity, not just to test them, but 50% of those conversations are like, are you okay? Or how are things going? Or who's affected? Great. And again, it's New York. So I'd say half the people I'm running into either have it or a family member has had it or have known someone who's close to them who's died. I mean, there's been a lot of that. And some percentage... I'm going to say maybe about 5 to 10% of my students are simply alone. They were in a roommate situation. The roommate went back to Long Island, mm-hmm. for instance. And so I'm talking to some students who have been completely 100% alone for, what, two months now in their apartment. And that's solitary confinement. And there's really no other way. I mean, you could have Zoom dance parties all you want. But at the end of the day, the human social experience includes a more intimate level of being with people than just video chatting. So I'm very concerned. I think there's reason to be very concerned about the mental health consequences. And I think from a public policy perspective, thinking about that at a large scale and thinking about resource allocation moving forward and good science on it and best practices and then implementing best practices, I think is going to be absolutely essential because we cannot let that fall by the wayside. Absolutely. Thank you for doing that work because it is so important and it is still in the shadows, unfortunately. And the only way to get it out is through the work that you're doing. I think that that just kind of leads us to our last question. And it is our favorite one. A little bit of a lighter note. (laughs) And a little bit of a lighter note. We like to conclude all of our uh, interviews with this one. What has been your favorite snack during quarantine? (laughs) <laughs> my favorite snack during quarantine. Might be cheeseburgers. <laughs> oh my God. I actually have a kind of interesting answer to that because of how I eat. So I, starting in about 2016, I've started eating with almost zero exceptions, 100% natural foods, vegetables, fruit, meat, and eggs, nothing else for like wow. four years. And then, like I was saying, when I got into quarantine, My wife has made these awesome cheeseburgers and grilled cheese sandwiches when I was sick. And when Mm -hmm. I was sick, it was just unbelievable how much I craved that stuff. I almost felt like a pregnant woman who had like these cravings, you know, that (laughs) were uncontrollable. That goes into how you were saying the virus has hijacked your system, right? Yes. Something was hijacking my system. Yeah, because I'm like, I'm upstairs and my wife's texting me, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, this is going to sound crazy. I haven't said this since 2015, but... 
please make me a cheeseburger. And then of course your body gets used to that. So it took me about a week or two of like putting that stuff down. Yeah. Yeah. Reminding myself of the food related values that I've had. So I'm back to eating natural foods. And from that perspective, the answer is steak. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gare. And we really sure. appreciate you coming on here. And we're so excited for our audience to hear the things we talked about today. I think that this is one of the most interesting conversations we've had so far. So we really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you having me. I think that the work you guys are doing is important and is going to make a positive difference. And I wish you both the best moving forward. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank Have a good so rest much. of your weekend. Yep. Thanks. You too. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Get Your Damn Flu Shot. So this is the part where I tell you all to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. You can find us on all major host platforms like iTunes and Spotify. But really what we ask of you in a time like this, we need your help. The world needs your help to get the word out there. So don't just listen. Share with your family, your friends, and your pets. Send them a link so we can all stay connected. Email us at gydfspodcast at gmail.com to join the conversation. And uh, remember to get your damn flu shots.